Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with my friend and comrade, Derek Davison. And we're very excited to welcome to the podcast, Noilani Ahia, who is a Kanaka Maui community organizer and who is presently in Maui. Uh, Noilani, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so maybe you could just let listeners know what's been going on in Hawaii. Well, you know, it's it's been just a little over a week since we had a, a massive, incredibly destructive fire that hit Lahaina town. Uh, Lahaina is on the west side of Maui, and it's a it's a very important, uh, sacred and historical place for Kanaka Maui for our indigenous first people. And the fire, the fire, uh, just ravaged the entire area. Uh, our death toll right now is over a hundred, but it's expected to climb as we have over a thousand people still missing. So behind the town is essentially a graveyard right now in ash. So one thing that I, I seem to know about natural disasters is that they're not natural. So how did it come Correct. to be that, that this happened? Well, you know, I think it's a constellation of, of, events going going all the way back to the illegal overthrow and the foreign government that came in the american government the white supremacy the theft of land from native people um the theft of water the diversion of water for sugar plantation which left lahaina very dry and barren lahaina the whole area uh, was full of ulu or breadfruit trees pre-contact that kept it very cool and shaded uh, and lush and green. The water was flowing. Um, but since plantation times, with the water being diverted, Lahaina has been very hot and very dry. And you add that with climate change and the hurricane that didn't touch ground, but the, the winds were so strong that day of the fire, combined with the over-tourism, which, you know, all of the excessive development from tourism and from foreign investors has also uh, plagued our land, also requires great amounts of water. And, and then the lack of, of access for Kanakamali people to manage our own resources because we have a settler government uh, imposing their practices on us. All of these are a constellation for, for disaster, really, and it was only a matter of time. This, this particular one also included government faux pas and utility faux, company faux pas, o- overall lack of preparedness and lack of coordination in the aftermath. And it's just been incredibly devastating. Uh, th- these kinds of things are, are man-made. They're, they're a conglomeration of 130 years of bad decisions of land management in Hawaii by foreigners. Do you have any, um, maybe you could expand on that a bit for people who might not be familiar with the history. We don't need to go into a a detailed thing, but, but what do you mean by this land management by, by, by settlers? Well, the Hawaiian people were, you know, self-governing for a few thousand years and did quite well, cultivated the lands, were able to feed ourselves and take care of ourselves quite well. In the mid-1800s, as more foreigners started to come, they started to uh, want the land for sugar plantations. That led to an illegal overthrow of our monarchy, uh, which led to a joint resolution by the United States to, in order to annex Hawaii, but there was never a treaty of annex, so the whole situation was basically illegal. 
the United States just illegally occupied Hawaii and is still occupying Hawaii. So we are currently under a military occupation by the United States. And so our kingdom, our kingdom still exists, but it's being dominated by America. Could you maybe talk a little bit about the state of indigenous peoples? Because you mentioned that they they don't have any real power here. Um, could you talk a little bit about how that actually manifests on the ground and, and how this sure. might have led to this terrible tragedy? Well, you know, at the time of contact when foreign disease was brought, uh, estimates are that there are close to a thousand Kalakamali living um, in the Hawaiian Islands. And by the time of the overthrow in 1893, because of, of disease and foreign invasion, we were down to 40,000. Now, our population has grown since then, but there was a huge push by America to get Americans to move to Hawaii to basically colonize the land and, and set up homesteads. So when you look at our population makeup, today in Hawaii, we make up between 10 and 20%, depending on whose numbers you're looking at, of the population. So our voting power is very, very small. We don't have enough political power by ourselves in order to gain seats in government, in order to get laws changed, in order to regulate what is going on with what happens in our everyday lives, like the, the uh, overdevelopment for wealthy foreigners, the housing crisis, the water crisis, the, our unsheltered population, the prison industrial complex and our judicial system, uh, all of these things impact everyday life for Kanakamali. No, Alana, maybe you could talk, I mean, given the the context of, of why we're, we're talking today, maybe you could go into a little bit of, of detail about the, the sort of ongoing challenge with respect to resource and water issues in particular, uh, you oh know, the gosh. struggle between yeah. the the, the native peoples and, and this, uh, you know, as you say, very settler uh, community that's come in. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in, in Olelo Hawaii, which is our mother tongue, the word for water is vai. And in our mother tongue, the word for wealth is vai vai, which means if you have water, you have wealth. You can live, right? We can't live without water. So... At the time of the plantation um, oligarchy taking over, they started building ditch systems to route the water from one place on the island to where they wanted to plant sugar. And this ditch system is very complex. It's still in use today. Um, but essentially what it did was move resource away from where the people were. And for Kamakamali, we, we do land management in a system called Ahupua'a, uh, which is a land division that goes from the mountain to the ocean, or we say Malka to Makai, so that everybody in that Ahuwa'a has access to the resources up top all the way down to the ocean. And then we have the fish ponds and the wetlands and the estuaries where those two meet, uh, which makes this this magical recipe for food and nutrition for our people. It was a very ingenious situation. But when the oligarchy started moving water around, they would take it to more uh, dry areas, naturally dry areas, in order to bring water so that they could grow sugar. And so they left the streams completely dry. Hundreds of streams were left dry, which meant that 
Kalakamali people who were what we call mahi ai, or it roughly translates to farmer, but it's so much more than that. Uh, the mahi ai were not able to grow kalo in their villages anymore because there was no water. So this forced a migration out of the valleys. It forced people to not be able to live a subsistence lifestyle any longer. They were now forced to get jobs with the plantation because that was the only job in order just to survive and put food on the table for their family. And that broke us away from our family systems. That broke us away from our traditional and customary practices as well as our staple diet. The water wars are still going on to this day. There are legal battles happening all the time. Uh, The state is in control of giving out water leases. And uh, historically, those leases have gone to A&B or Alexander and Baldwin, which is one of the companies that was involved with the illegal overthrow. So Alexander and Baldwin has had a massive political monopoly in Hawaii, um, both in the legislature and local county politics, and they they basically control what, what happens to water. And uh, the, the people, though, I have to say, in the last 30 years have really risen up. We've had some amazing legislation and gotten some really good rulings. Uh, water is starting to be restored to East Maui, and our younger generations are starting to step up and take on those ancestral practices of growing kalo. And our, our local government is is starting to look at strategies to get the water leases back. But as long as the water leases are in the hands of corporations, it's super problematic. ANB recently, a few years ago, sold their land to a Canadian investment company called Mahipono. Uh, and while you know we're happy that that they're doing agriculture on the land and not development, there's still a question about what's going to happen with the water because. As an investment company, their first priority is to their shareholders, and um, they're part of the Canadian Pension Fund. And they have a reputation, that Canadian Pension Fund, for water banking in other places. Because as we know, with climate change, water is going to become scarce. And water wars are already happening all over the globe. And I think Maui is, is sort of ground zero for that right now. So how did all of this contribute to the fires? For one thing, the the change in our ecosystem, right? So you go from a very lush, very green, very balanced land tenure system to something where all of the vegetation is removed, the land is cemented over, so when it does rain, it, it takes all the, the junk with it into the ocean and pollutes the ocean, um, but it doesn't get to sink into the aina or the earth the land, in order to recharge the aquifer. It puts the ecosystem out of balance where a lush green place as it once was would have never sparked, you know, would have never caught fire and spread like this. And then you add just the density of the population there um, with the, the massive amounts of housing, local housing, foreign investor housing, as well as you know, hotels and, and tourist development that forever changed our shoreline. This sort of trifecta of the dispossession of Kanaka from the land, so now we're not managing the land, and there, there's no equitable land management, as well as the tourism and overdevelopment, as well as the climate change conditions with the hurricane, 
And it's a recipe for a disaster. And I just want to say, this is something that we see throughout settler colonialism. I'm currently in Los Angeles. And one of the reasons that LA has also suffered such terrible, quote unquote, natural disasters is sorts of these sorts of, you know, building in spaces that you should, one shouldn't build in you know, natural wildfire spaces. So this is, you know, Malibu famously Mike Davis wrote about, but this is something you see throughout, um, Settler colonial societies, particularly in in the the Western United States, and and of course Hawaii. So I just wanted to say, if anyone wants to read a, a more about this, check out Mike Davis's Ecology of Fear. Right, Nolani, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about climate change and and what kinds of effects Hawaii has been feeling. You know, what's obviously part of the context here, and and uh, sort of how climate change is affecting Hawaii and has been affecting it for the last several years, we talk about climate change impacting South Pacific islands. But I think for, for many Americans, I suspect it's, it's not easy to think of Hawaii in that same context because Hawaii is, is a state. It's part of, you know, on some level, sort of part of the United States, even though uh, it is this, if you say you so. know, very, uh, well, I mean, uh, it's, yeah, it's yeah, no. you know, this very colonized space and, and yeah. uh, located in a place where climate change is, is probably, uh, you know, has has a much different salience than, let's say, in in uh, Middle America, for example, or in the sure. continent, continental United yeah. States. So, I wonder if you could talk about the specific context of Hawaii in in, in terms of climate change. Sure, you know, in, indigenous people are the the least contributing factor to climate change, but the most likely to be devastated by it, particularly in Oceania. And um, you know, for Hawaii. I'm not a climate scientist, but I do a practice called kilo. That's a, it's a Hawaiian word for um, observation. And observation takes place over many years, over many generations. And it's wisdom that's gathered by paying attention, um, not necessarily re- requiring scientific metrics to understand that there are changes happening. So using that system of kilo, we can see even in the past five years, this is not the first fire that Lahaina's had. We had several in the past five years that were not nearly as catastrophic this as this one, but very, very damaging. A- another one that came, one of them, I think it was 2017 or 2018, came on the heels of a hurricane and everybody was prepped for a hurricane. And at that point, weren't really expecting a fire, but a fire ended up blazing in Lahaina that fire was a little bit more up in the mountains and it did less damage, but it still displaced families, particularly Kanakamali families who were living on their ancestral lands. So we can see the shore level rise, which is, is one of the really, really big indicators. We're losing our beaches because there have been um, seawalls that have been erected and hardening of the shoreline in order to protect property usually vacation rentals and oftentimes hotels uh, where seawalls have been erected. Those are currently being rethought by the government where they finally realize that uh, they, number one, don't work to protect property, but number two, they completely damage the ecosystem of the ocean and the way that the sand is supposed to move in and be pulled out and and move in and be pulled out and uh, work with the reefs and create create a dune system. All that is wiped out on our shorelines where we have massive tourist populations. 
you know, our native plants that would grow on those sand dunes are part of what would stabilize the shoreline, but those have been wiped out in areas where there's massive tourist population. All, all of the things that were in place prior to contact <laughs> could have helped mitigate the effects of climate change. But but for us, you know, we're, we're also seeing migrations as a result of climate change of folks coming here from other places and of course hawaiians are very very welcoming Uh, unfortunately usually when people come it's not by invitation of the kalakalali it's usually by invitation of the american government so it can be a little bit tense sometimes but you know climate uh, resettling due to climate change is going to be an issue going forward but really we're just when I think about our island, I envision it the way I want it to be, in balance and restored and full of life and offering abundance to its people the way that it once was. But right now we're covered, it's, you know, it's the paved over paradise song where we're covered in cement. And the cement, oftentimes in Hawaii, is made from sand, from a sand dune complex in central Mali. Uh, that I've personally been advocating for for many years against illegal sand mining and resource extraction because that sand is where a lot of our ancient ancestors are buried. Their ibikupuna, their bones, are in this sand. And it's been taken away and shipped to Oahu and made into cement to make concrete for those monster buildings and for the rail. So our ancestors' bones are literally in the columns of the rail that they just put up. And those columns are already cracking, by the way. It's only been a few years. You know, but we have this, this, again, a constellation of colonial events that mismanage resource, that take things from point A to point B where they don't belong. And, and, it's so incredibly imbalanced and off-centered and intuitively, you know, opposite of the balance that these islands once held. So trying to hold a vision to get back to that place where we can restore some of that, we call it pono or righteousness or balance. And how has, have people responded either on the U.S. state side or the uh, people's side? Well, to be honest, I don't pay too much attention to the U.S. state because they always fail us, um, and it, it's no different right now. Uh, really, what's happening on the ground is that the people have mobilized. We have an incredible, non-centralized, direct action, mutual aid, community organizing happening. So on the west side, people have been, Lahaina's in the west side of Maui, and people have been cut off. The road has been closed. It's just opening up today. But we, um, I work with a group called the Mauna Medic Healers who we, we were on Mauna Kea in 2019 during the standoff with TMT, uh, providing medical care for people on the mountain. And we mobilized for this um, because we had some imp- organizing infrastructure in place already. And the fire is Tuesday, and I think we were out there by Thursday. And we've had a team out there every day since. And the work on the ground that's happening with all the communities is incredible. There are... Um, community-based hubs that have popped up all along the west side 
where people can come pick up water, get food, get clothes, get needs. Um, and then we have our medical tent set up. The community has been rallying to get goods into the west side because the road was closed. So we've had many, many people bringing boats from other islands and from, from the other side of Maui to get goods to people, you know, like life-saving goods, like food and water. We've had people helicopter in to bring in supplies. It's just been an incredible outpouring of support. And, you know, for us as Indigenous people, this is really the way the way that it's supposed to be done. We're supposed to be living in community and we're supposed to be taking care of ourselves and each other uh, and not relying on the outside, um, you know, foreign government to do those things for us. So it, it's created a sense of sort of independence and uh, solidarity in the larger community, not just the Kanakamali people, but but all of the people here who love Hawaii and care about Hawaii and care about its people, especially especially taking care of Kanakamali people uh, and, and making space for Kanakamali voices to be centered in this process. So the work on the ground is really amazing, but it's challenging because, you know, emotionally you've got this juxtaposition of this most devastating horrific crisis where people lost their lives and people are still missing and then on the other hand this amazing community response that's so beautiful and so full of life and gives us hope because we're creating the world that we want to see where people take care of each other again in small communities and it's hard to reconcile inside because there's such opposite feelings, but um, I think we're all learning to work with carrying all of that emotionally and and finding the space for that. You know, but the other thing on the ground is is the mental health need. It's people are really, really traumatized, um, still in shock. Uh, we're we're still trying to get get mental health practitioners out to the west side to do you know mental health first aid. Because people are really, really suffering from shock and trauma. And, you know, we don't want it to turn into PTSD, but, you know, it's going to go that way if we don't take care of our people. So it's really just a lot of organizing around asking people, what do you need? You know, plenty of people, their, their medication burned up in the fire. And there was no pharmacies on the west side that were open. There's no hospital on the west side. You know, there, there is just very little access and people didn't have phone service uh, or electricity. And for at some point there was no water. And then when the water was turned back on, it's contaminated. You know, it, it kind of felt like a war zone over there for a little bit. But the people are organizing and taking care of each other. No, Ilani, I think uh, as we wrap up here, uh, maybe the, the, the best thing to wrap up on is is what can people do listeners who want to help uh want to want to do something to help the situation uh where can people go what what resources could they look to wow, absolutely uh, to try and, try and be of service absolutely um i would say the very first thing is to respect our grieving process and give us space and please don't come here right now it's just too much it's too much uh, we need the families to be able to grieve. We need our whole community to be able to grieve. Um, if folks want to donate, there's a Maui Mutual Aid Fund that you can go to. It's www.bit.ly 
backslash Maui, M-A-U-I, mutual aid, M-U-T-U-A-L-A-I-D-E. Um, and that's a great place where money is getting directly distributed uh, without a third party. It's getting directly distributed to the people on the ground doing the community work um, and to the families in need that have lost their homes and lost uh, everything, really. So please donate, share on social media, and pray for us in whatever whatever that means to you, in whatever way. Um, just please send us your aloha and keep us in your prayers. Nailani Ahia, uh, our thoughts are, are with you and, and the people in, of Maui in this obviously very difficult time. I want to thank you for coming on the show and sharing your experience and a little bit of the background to this situation to help people understand it better. We will have a link to uh, donate in the show description. And again, uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.